Good morning. Um, I have two words of uh, preface before I get into my sermon, um, before I pray. Uh, If you look at your sermon notes underneath the section of the doctrine of the Trinity, I will not be doing the historical development part. So don't be confused. Don't think I missed something. Um, I'm not going to do that. And then I also am going to be using a PowerPoint this morning. And that's not meant to be a distraction, but hopefully a guide to help you along as I go through. And um, don't try and write everything down on that. I'll put that on the website so you don't have to worry about trying to get everything uh, written down. It's probably more important that you hear what I'm going to say. Um, So with that, I'll just uh, start with a word of prayer, if you join me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is our desire this morning to... Uh, to know you. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us this morning by the power of your spirit, that you would focus us on your son, and that he may reveal who you are. Father, I pray that that you would speak this morning, that you would stir our hearts to wonder and amazement at who you are. And uh, Father, uh, may you help us in our weakness as we try to comprehend who you are. May you give us strength and clarity of mind. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So the most most important question for any theistic religion or faith system is what is the identity of God? The answer to this question comes in many shapes and sizes depending on which faith system you ask. The Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, and the Christian all have different opinions, and beliefs concerning this ultimate question, who is God? The reason this question is of ultimate importance is not only because it seeks to give understanding and meaning to the divine, but the answer to this question also has a lot of bearing on the direction one's life takes. In other words, our beliefs about God determines our belief about the world, ourselves, and the overall meaning of life. Now, let me briefly explain where I'm going with all this. The most basic starting point for any worldview is our beliefs about God, or phrased slightly different, the most basic starting point of our perception of life, meaning, and purpose is our theology. Before I go any further, I think it is important to lay an elementary definition of what a worldview is and what our worldview has to do with our theology. So if you go to that first slide, Nina. Uh, This is a diagram of what a worldview is. At the bottom, you'll see... The triangle represents our worldview, and at the bottom you'll see theology, which seeks to answer the question, who is God? That's the most fundamental and foundational part of any worldview. Then above that you have what is called beliefs, and that's trying to answer the question, what is true? And so our theology informs our beliefs. And then even above that you have values, that's trying to answer the question, what is good? And then even further above that, and this is the only thing that we see in our relationships with one another, what actually surfaces is our behavior, what is actually done. So you have our theology, which informs all those three layers above it. So our theology is the most foundational and important aspect of any worldview, and it informs the others. Now that we have a working concept of what a worldview is, we must now take a look at the most important or fundamental aspect that forms our beliefs, values, and behavior. We must take a look at our theology. You can go to the next slide. Before we can go too far in discussing the importance of theology, we must first define what theology is. 
Theology, as I understand it, is the process of reflecting on the identity of God and the outcome that reflection produces. If my assumption is correct, that definition should catch some of you off guard. Most people think that theology is some intellectual pursuit where holier-than-thou people try to probe and define difficult philosophical puzzles about God's identity and actions with humanity. So, most people dismiss theology and think that it's a subject to be studied by the experts, those who are pastors, scholars, or professors. But that is the furthest thing from the truth. Theology is never meant to be a stuffy religious activity that only goes so far as thinking deeply about who God is. In actuality, true theology is reflection on who God is and then having the beauty of who, that God, who God is transform your values and in turn have an impact on your behavior. Theology is a practice that engages the mind, what we believe, the heart, what we value, and the hands, what we do. Now, going back to our worldview diagram, what I mean is that theology is not only what we think about God, but also how we live. Let me give you a few historical examples to help explain this idea that theology shapes how we live. Almost all destructive and redemptive movements throughout history have been fueled by people's conception of God. To give an example, Adolf Hitler was under the impression that God valued only the Aryan race. Hitler conceived of a God, small g, who valued uniformity, not diversity in ethnicity. Hitler's God was a God who valued only those who were the strongest, a Darwinian mentality of survival of the fittest. Out of that theology came Hitler's conviction that God had commissioned him to the task of purifying the world of all Jews, handicapped, diseased, and homosexuals. It was Hitler's theology that led to horrific mistreatment and destruction of countless lives. Unfortunately, Hitler is not the only one whose misinformed theology destroyed countless lives. Others include people like Joseph Stalin, Fidel Castro, Ho Chi Minh, Kim Jong-il, Saddam Hussein, and countless other political monsters. Underlying their political philosophies was an even deeper conviction of who they believed God to be. The impact of misinformed theology does not stop there, but continues into our present day. A modern-day example of theology's impact is the recent terrorist attacks on 9-11. These extremist Muslims were compelled to take destructive actions in response to who they thought God to be. Their theology was what drove them to take those steps. But thankfully, people's theology has not only a destructive or negative effect on the world. Indeed, there have been numerous redemptive movements that have been sparked by great leaders. Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, William Wilberforce, Harriet Tubman, Nelson Mandela, and many others. These leaders were compelled by their vision of who God was, and in response to that vision, acted to bring that reflection of God's identity to bear on the world around them. Now, going back to our original question, who is God? The answer to this question cannot be underestimated as to its potential effect it can have on one's life, as well as the effect one's understanding of God's identity can have on the world around us. Theology's importance and impact cannot be underestimated. So, some of you may be wondering, enough already, get to the good stuff. Where's the Bible in all this? What does this have to do with Christianity? And why are we talking about all this stuff about worldview and theology? Well, now that I have explained what a worldview is, as well as the important role theology has in forming the direction of our lives, we can now begin to investigate Christian theology. Christian theology is the ongoing process of seeking to understand the identity of the Christian God, which in turn 
informs our beliefs, values, and behavior. If you haven't caught anything that I've said so far, please understand this. The entire goal of this sermon is to think about the triune identity of God and how that particular theological truth shapes our beliefs, values, and actions. You can go to the next slide, Nina. So that, uh, this is why I have titled my sermon, The Trinitarian Life of God, Theology for the Life of the Church. This whole sermon is meant to be an explanation of that title, discussing the key to God's identity as being triune and the inner workings of God's dynamic life as he relates between persons within himself. After discussing the doctrine of the Trinity and the Trinitarian life of God, I will move on to show how that theological vision is a guide for the church's life, mission, and purpose. Now, before I simply jump into talking about God, I realize what a magnificent joy and humbling task and responsibility this is. The sheer fact that God has chosen to reveal himself to us is a gracious and benevolent gift of God, one that I do not presume to take lightly. In fact, I think Gregory of Nazianzus, a 4th century theologian, got it right when he said, to speak of the Godhead, I know. To speak of the Godhead is, I know, like crossing the ocean on a raft or flying to the stars with wings of a narrow span. So acknowledging my own weaknesses this morning as a finite being and a sinner saved by grace, I hope that God's power may be put on display this morning in my own weaknesses and shortcomings. I pray this morning, along with Paul, that my conversation and my preaching are not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not be based on human wisdom, but on the power of God. I pray that God's power may be made perfect in my weakness. I think it is so important that as I set out to explain and explore the identity of God, that this posture of dependence, humility, and worship remains center stage. One of the most important lessons I've learned at college is that when it comes to doing theology and talking about God, the doctrine of God's omnipresence must be kept in mind at all times. It is key that we don't forget who we are talking about and thinking about. He is even here today right in our midst. He is the goal of our worship, the object of our worship, and the enabler of our worship. He is the end, the means, and the motivation. He is all in all. With all of this in mind, I think we can, been, we can begin to take a look at who God is, but only through the Spirit's help. <clears throat> I begin our discussion of the doctrine of the Trinity with a quote from Leslie Newbigin. He says, The ordinary Christian in the Western, Western world who hears or reads the word God does not immediately and inevitably think of the triune being, Father, Son, and Spirit, but rather of a supreme monad. For this reason, among many others, I thought it was vitally important to revisit this integral doctrine of the Christian faith in order to remind ourselves of the beauty and mystery of who God is as Father, Son, and Spirit. First, let's take a look at the inspiration for the doctrine of the Trinity, the Bible. Acknowledging the term Trinity never appears in any text of Scripture, but certainly the idea lays under the surface of almost every text. You can go to the next slide. In any discussion of the Trinity, the impulse of many Christians is to jump to those texts which have been aptly termed proof texts, which include the Trinitarian formula, Father, Son, and Spirit. Since this has been the knee-jerk reaction of many Christians, I will start the biblical discussion from a different point of view. I will begin by analyzing the biblical roots of this doctrine from different biblical narratives which portray God's identity as Father, Son, and Spirit. 
The first narrative, some of which I discussed in my last sermon, is the story of creation. From the start of the Christian story, God is identified as triune. Several texts which convey this truth is Genesis 1, 1 and 2, John 1, 1 through 4, and Colossians 1, 15 through 17. In Genesis 1, 2, the Spirit of God hovers over the surface of the waters, identifying God as spirit. In verse 3, it says that God speaks and miraculously calls light into existence, identifying God as Father. And lastly, the most cryptic of the three is the mention of Jesus, or the Son, as God's spoken word. The Apostle John identifies this spoken word, capital W, with the person of Jesus when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. The Word was with God in the beginning. All things were created by him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Notice how similar these two passages are, Genesis 1, 1-3, and John 1, 1-3. It seems very intentional that John identifies the person of Jesus with the same God of the Old Testament who created all things. The Apostle John is not the only one who does this. The Apostle Paul also identifies Jesus as the one who created all, all things in heaven and on earth, in Colossians 1, and identifies Jesus as the one... Oh, and elsewhere. It is clear from this collection of texts that God is in some sense triune. Another narrative that brings out the triune identity of God is the baptism of Jesus. Each gospel records the baptism of Jesus, some a little more descriptive than others, but this narrative event depicts each person of the Godhead in a unique way. The Father is the one who speaks, confirming the intimate love and approval he has of Jesus, his Son. Jesus, in turn, is confirmed as the Son of God, and the one on whom the Spirit rests. Lastly, but certainly not least, is the Spirit, who is identified as the messenger from heaven who brings life, power, and blessing upon Jesus and his ministry. This this single story is an awesome portrait of the identity of God as Father, Son, and Spirit. The baptism of Jesus is also an important event, which sets the stage for the rest of Jesus' ministry. The next narrative, which depicts God's identity as triune, is Jesus' ministry. Most of us, when we think of Jesus' ministry, think of Jesus as the sole actor. Instead of seeing the miracles of Jesus as actions done in tandem with the Father and the Spirit. The ministry of Jesus involves the actions of the whole Godhead. Each person is at work in a different capacity to accomplish the whole of God's mission. It would be a shame, and even more than that, unbiblical, to view the actions of Jesus as separated from the involvement of the Father and the Spirit. This is a distortion of the identity of the Christian God. Both Father and Spirit were intimately involved in assisting, guiding, and empowering the ministry of Jesus. Not only are there narratives which portray the triune identity of our God, an identity which seems to be hidden just under the surface of numerous texts, but there are also blatant texts which call our attention to God's triune identity, some of which include Matthew 28:19, Ephesians 2:17 and 18, and 2 Corinthians 13, 13. And I'll just briefly read each, each one of these. If you want to follow around, you can. I'll just read them from you, uh, for you. Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And Ephesians 2, 17 and 18. And Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near so that through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 2 Corinthians 13.13 says, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All of these texts, both narratives and proof texts, 
bear witness to the fact that is that God is one in being or essence, and yet at the same time, three in persons. This famous expression, God is one in three persons, as well as the term Trinity, were both invented by the early church in order to designate what was right Christian belief, or in other words, what was orthodox theology. We owe a great debt of gratitude to our fathers and mothers of the faith who worked hard to explain the truths of Scripture and protected them from heresy. I wish there were more time this morning to talk in more detail about how this doctrine progressed and what other terms were used to describe God, but this would take us way off course. So now we come to the so-called meat of the sermon. Switching gears a little bit, I want to move from describing the doctrine of the Trinity, or at least providing its biblical credibility, to discussing the Trinitarian life of God. You may have noticed by now that I used the phrase Trinitarian life of God instead of the term Trinity in the title of my sermon. I'm using this phrase very consciously and purposefully because I want to do justice to the dynamic character of the life of God. My purpose in using this phrase is to take us through the doctrinal truth of the Trinity in order to explore the reality to which it points, to explore the contours of God's life as much as humanly possible. Some of the questions I am seeking to answer in this section is what is the life of God like? How do the persons of the three-in-one God relate to one another? What do they think of each other? How does God behave within himself? It is in answering these questions that we catch a glimpse of how beautiful and majestic God is. And hopefully, after reflecting on the identity of God, we we respond to the truths we encounter. Hopefully, as a result of encountering the identity of our God, Our response is to stand back in awe, worship, adoration, and amazement at the complexities, mysteries, and intricacies of the Trinitarian life of God. This is always the intended goal of Christian theology. Again, our theology must always lead us to worship. So after examining a lot of scripture, I've come up with several descriptions of what the Trinitarian life of God is like. All right, you can go to the next slide. All right, this is going to kind of be quick. I'm going to blaze through uh, a bunch of different texts that I've um, kind of read through. And these points that you see behind me are all things that I've used to describe what these verses are saying. So ways of categorizing and creating order out of it. Um, And I'm just going to go briefly through these and I'll give you kind of what I mean by saying those little points. And then I'm going to go through the text and show you how those Those texts are pointing to those things. All right, so first we have otherness within God's own being. What I mean by this is that there's some sort of sense of personhood where God can can be God, but at the same time, God can be with God. Um, So there's this otherness idea. There's this fellowship idea within God's life where there's communication between persons, where there's uh, a sharing of life. Um, There's an intimacy. There's a communion, um, that sort of thing. There's a unity of purpose in God's actions. Uh, The way I use... Uh, to describe this is kind of picture a triangle. At the tip of the triangle, you have a certain person of the Trinity acting, like Jesus dying on the cross. But behind, on the other points of the triangle, you have the Father and the Spirit acting in tandem with the Son. So all of them are active in the same way, in the same um, act, but they're not active in the same way. So Jesus is the one in the front. Um, That's just a way of kind of understanding that. Hospitality within God's life. There's a welcoming and sharing life with others. So God within himself is sharing life um, with the other. There's, and there's a, almost a welcoming of the other um, to, to come in to know that sort of thing. 
there's mutual love within God's life where you where um, they defer to the other or they seek to raise up the other. There's mutual indwelling. And what I mean by that is that um, Jesus says, I am in the father. The father is in me. That sort of thing where there's this spatial language of intimacy. Um, there's intimate knowing within God's life where they search out the other, um, that there's some sort of openness between persons, uh, which is really cool. Uh, commissioning within God's own being. The Father sends out the Son. The Son sends out the Spirit. That sort of idea. Um, and mutual respect within God's life. There's a, Again, that's sort of like mutual love, but it's a submitting or deferring to the other. It's a lifting up of the other, honoring the other. Um, and then there's interdependence within God's own being. This sort of idea where they rely on one another and they're not acting in isolation um, or independent of the other. Okay, so now let me just blaze through a couple verses that kind of um, show these things, show you where I'm getting this from. And the first is John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. The Word was with God in the beginning. This gets at the idea of the otherness or personhood in God with the with God. And um, it also gets at this fellowship idea, this communion, living life with God. So God in three persons is living life together. John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God. The only one, himself God, who is in closest fellowship with the Father, has made God known. This gets at the idea of the otherness or personhood in God again. Um, and the fellowship idea, fellowship with the Father. And it also gets at the idea that Jesus is God's self-revelation, where um, Jesus has made God known. John three thirty-four and 35. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he does not give the Spirit sparingly. The Father loves the Son and has placed all things under his authority. This gets at the idea of mutual love and mutual respect, where the Father loves the Son and seeks to place all things under his authority, almost deferring to the other, giving something over to the Son, as well as the idea of commissioning. Of course, the one whom God has sent, Jesus, is sent by the Father. Um, John five nineteen through 23. I tell you the solemn truth. The Son can do nothing of his own initiative, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he does, and will show him greater deeds than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whoever he wishes. Furthermore, the Father does not judge anyone, but has assigned all judgment to the Son, so that all people will honor the Son just as they honor the, the Father. The one who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So again, here we get at the idea of interdependence. The Son can do nothing of his own initiative. Um, this gets at that idea of working together. No, there's no disharmony in, in action, so they're both doing, um, for whatever the Son does, the, the Father does likewise, or whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. There's no disharmony. There's fellowship and communion and hospitality here, where there's an openness and a desire to share life with the other. Um, where they're open with one another. The, the, the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he does. It also has a deferring of praise or glory to the other. So it's the, all people will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Uh, moving on to John six, fifty-six and 57. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood resides in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who consumes me will live because of me. This gets at the idea of interdependence. Jesus says, I live because of the Father. Um, John eight fifteen and 16. 
You people judge by outward appearance. I do, I do not judge anyone. But if I judge, my evaluation is accurate because I am not alone when I judge. But I, I and the Father who sent me do so together. Here again, you see they're unified in action. They're interdependent. Um, they're, doing, they're doing the judging together. Um, skipping down, John ten fifteen. The Father knows me and I know the Father. It gets at this idea of intimate knowing um, going on. John 10.30, the Father and I are one, gets at this idea of this inter, interdependent. They're also mutually indwelling. Um, I have so many verses I could read. I'm going to skip a bunch. Um, let me just read the last three I've got. Everything I have belongs to you, and everything you have belongs to me. That's Jesus speaking with the Father, again getting at this idea of fellowship, mutual love, and hospitality. Um, John seventeen twenty one. I pray that they will all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. I pray that they will be in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. Again, this idea of fo- uh, fellowship and mutual indwelling. And then 1 Corinthians two ten and 11. For the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the things of a man, except the man's spirit within him? So too, no one knows the things of God, except the Spirit of God. So here you get at the idea of this intimate knowing and the searching out of the other. The spirit searches the deep things of God. Um, that's kind of just describing a little bit of the, the complexities of God's life within himself. So after examining some aspects of the Trinitarian life of God, we must shift our attention and see how Jesus fits into this picture. Most importantly, we must explain why it is that Jesus receives so much of our attention, almost at the expense of skipping over the other persons of the Godhead. Why is it okay for a church to say that they are Christ-centered instead of Trinitarian-centered, except for, the simple fact that the, except for the simple fact that Christ-centered has a certain ring to it? I think the answer to such a question lies in the simple fact that the Bible says more about Jesus, but also, and most importantly, Jesus is God's self-revelation. What I mean by that is that Jesus is how we know who God is. The identity of Jesus is how we know the identity of God. Let me briefly explain the important features of the identity of Jesus and then what that means for us, his followers. So you can go to the next slide, Nina. All right. First, let's take a look at the identity of Jesus as the image of the Trinitarian life of God. Um, There's three verses I'm using to kind of get at what I mean by the image. Jesus is kind of like the face or the expression of who God is. Um, Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of of God's glory, and the representation of his essence. John 1, 1, 2, I've already read it before. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then also John fourteen seven, If you have known me, you will know my Father too. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then again, Colossians 1, 15, um, He is the image of the invisible God. This is all going to show that Jesus is God's self-revelation. This is how we know who God is. Second, let's look at the identity of Jesus as the heart of the Trinitarian life of God. What I mean by heart is um, what God values, um, almost his, his desire for the world. So I've come up with three little kind of catchy phrases. One is God with us, God for us, and God in us. In Matthew one twenty three, Jesus is said to be Emmanuel, God with us. Um, so it's God's desire to be with his people. Jesus shows us who God is. And God is a God who desires to be and to dwell with his people. Romans 
8, 31, and 34, this is describing God for us. It, it says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? And then this verse goes on to say that Christ even intercedes for us. Um, this is getting at the idea that God is for us. God is one who loves us, who sent his son for us. That sort of idea. And then Colossians 1.27 um, talking about God in us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Um, so it's God's desire to actually show hospitality to us. It is, it's within God's nature, but it's also God's nature to show hospitality to us, welcoming into um, his life um, and him into us. Okay, thirdly, let's look at the identity of Jesus as the way of the Trinitarian life of God. What I mean by this is um, that Jesus is the model or the example of what the Trinitarian life looks like, or what God, what God is like. And then let's all flip over to Philippians 2, if you would, just for a minute. Philippians 2, 1 through 8. All right, there's a lot of things that, that'll hopefully jump out after I've discussed all these things, um, but just notice the... Um, we're concentrating on noticing the character of Jesus here and what that tells us about God. So let's start uh, in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, being united in Spirit and having one purpose. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should in humility be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but also about the interests of others as well. You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had. So this is, this is who Christ Jesus, this is the attitude he had. Who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there's a couple things to notice about this passage. First is it's the Trinity is obviously involved and named here. Um, I didn't read all the way to the end, but God the Father is mentioned at the end. Of course, Jesus. And then the fellowship in the Spirit. And then notice the example of Jesus that we are to follow. Our, our morality is based on the example of Jesus. We're supposed to be following him. And essentially what Paul is saying in this text is that he's telling us to live like God. Hopefully some of those things jumped off the page about not considering, about considering others as more important than yourself. All these things sound like how God operates within himself. Um, having, again, having the same mind, having the same love, united in spirit. All those things are uh, describing God's life as well. So if you go to the last slide... Okay, um, so after all this, the question that comes to us this morning is how does Trinitarian theology inform the church's life, mission, and purpose? How does Trinitarian theology shape our values and behavior? Well, I would like to answer this question by first turning our attention to one small little command that Paul gives throughout many of his letters. His command is, be imitators of God. This is seemingly simple-sounding, command this is a seemingly simple command, um, but it should take on new dynamics and importance after hearing about the identity of our triune God. 
After learning about God's triune life, we can glean some insights into how we we are to act as his church in this world. If we are created to be his image bearers, it is no surprise that the church's main occupation is to mimic, imitate, portray, and inhabit the Trinitarian life of God before the world and within our own Christian community. The next question we are faced with is, if we are called to be imitators of God, which aspects of God's life are we to mimic? And how does that even work? What does that look like? Well, here are four biblical examples where we are to mimic God's life in the church and in the world. Um, so notice there's a um, turnover with me to John seventeen eleven. <clears throat> it says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them safe in your name that you have given me so that they may be one just as we are one. And again, over in 21 through 23, it says, Jesus' desire is that they will, be, they will all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. I pray, I pray that they will be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. The glory you gave to me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be completely one, so that the world will know that you sent me and you have loved me and you have loved them just as you have loved me. So what does this tell us about the church? Well, this should tell us that the church should share a Trinitarian unity, that Jesus' desire for us is to be one as he is one. We are also to share a Trinitarian love among ourselves in our own community, where we have a love for neighbor. Um and all of this is patterned after God's life. The, church, the church's life is patterned after God's life. Um, again, Philippians 2, the passage we just read, Paul talks about the like-mindedness that we're to have, the unity of purpose, all those things, the humility, considering others more important than each other, and then this mutual respect idea that we talked about. All these things um, are meant to be parts of the life of the church that are mimicking and uh, almost putting on display who God is. Also, we have Matthew 28 and John 17, 18, which gets at this idea that we, as the church, are to be um, acting out this Trinitarian mission to the world. This is much of what I said in my last sermon, where we are actually, as a church body, are sending people out, like the Wolfings. We also, God is commissioning, uh, the, the Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit. We also, as a church, are sending people out from our community into the world in order to bless, to bring life, that sort of thing. And then also the last point about how this should change our community and how Trinitarian thought, theology matters is um, Galatians 6 and 1 Corinthians 12. Just flip over with me if you would. This is the last one to uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 21, starting verse 21. All right. And it says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you, nor in turn can the head say to the foot, I do not need you. On the contrary, those members that seem to be weaker are essential, and those members we consider less honorable we clothe with greater honor, and our unpresentable members are clothed with dignity. But our presentable members do not need this. Instead, God has blended together the body, giving greater honor to the lesser member so that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have mutual concern for one another. 
If one member suffers, everyone suffers with it. If a member is honored, all rejoice with it. So again, reading a passage like that, uh, our mind should immediately go back to how God relates within himself. God is, um, does not act in isolation, nor does the church. It gets this idea of unity of purpose and also this idea of interdependence. The church is not... Um, the church should be grading against our cultural inclination towards individualism. We are actually called to make a community that's interdependent on one another for our needs. Um, and then Galatians 6 got this idea of bearing one another's burdens. So why do we strive for all of these things? Why does the church do these things? Well, it's because that is what God is like. And to conclude, theology, who God is, has great importance for the life of the church. The church is intended to be an extension of God's life enacted before the world, inviting them to also share in the ways of godliness, or we could say Christ-likeness. May we be challenged this day towards greater godliness, seeking to follow Jesus' example by the power of the Spirit to the glory and praise of our Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the beautiful picture that we have of who you are as Father, Son, and Spirit. Lord, we pray that this would not just be an exercise in, uh, in intellectually uh, trying to figure, who, figure you out. But Father, I pray that this would be something that changes the direction of our church. Father, that we would look on you as the example of how our church community is supposed to act. And that we would learn from you... Um, how to better display you and your love, your peace um, to this world around us. Lord, we thank you for uh, the way that you have revealed yourself to us, that you've been gracious to send us your son, and then through your son to send us your spirit as well. Lord, help us to, to constantly keep in mind who you are so that we may better live as Christians in this world. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.